Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 38, When Bill Clinton Failed. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Irons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons of modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go, grill what we grill, validate parking when we validate parking. And today, I'll be talking about Season 3, Episode 3, When Flanders Failed, which was first aired on October the 3rd, 1991. And I'm going to be talking about Slick Willie himself, for on October the 3rd, 1991, the very same day that when Flanders failed first aired, Bill Clinton announced that he was running for president of the USA. I'll be taking the opportunity to look back at the presidents of the USA and their various appearances in The Simpsons. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. Apologies, listeners, for not going full pelt for the hey, hey, hey there. You may think it's to do with current world events, if you're listening to this at the time we record it. Uh, however, it's actually because I'm wearing a headset mic this time, rather than having a mic on the table in front of me. Because we are in our retrospective quarantine caves. We are, we are. Uh, in case you haven't noticed... And it may be a lot worse by the time this actually goes out because we're recording on the 18th of March 2020. And yes, there is a current COVID-19 outbreak in progress. Uh, we're probably being a little bit overcautious, but we've decided to record from our respective dwellings rather than be go to Gareth's house. Uh, so unfortunately, I'm very sorry to tell you all, we are recording this through Skype. Like the pilot. The what? No, we don't talk of that. We don't talk of that. Um, <laughs> yes. Now, now you mentioned emails then, because I was all excited after the last show went out because someone actually emailed us. After 37 episodes, someone actually went into their email account, typed out an email, and it was to tell me off for my appalling Slavic pronunciations. <laughs> Which is which is fine. I'm more surprised that somebody I'm more surprised that somebody still uses email outside of a business context. To be honest, but uh, fair play, sir. Fair play. Yep, absolutely. It was someone called David, who lives in. Oh, here we go. B R N O. No, no, no. Don't worry. I'm joking. I've looked it up. It is, of course, pronounced Bono in the Czech Republic or Czechia as we're now meant to call it for some reason uh, yes uh, he, 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 he was quite unhappy with my pronunciation of various Slavic names including Red Star Belgrade who I, I attempted to pronounce their English uh, I attempted to pronounce their Serbian name and got it completely wrong so yes I usually in my preamble say apologies in advance for mangling pronunciations but I didn't that time not entirely sure why but what he did do, which was really cool, was offer some explanation into Crazy Vaclav and uh, what he says, uh, because we think it's, you know, gibberish that just sounds like Slavic. So, yes, David writes, my theory is that Crazy Vaclav does begin by saying Zagreb. In fact, I think it's Zagreb something Evnan, not really a word, Zloty, 
a common mispronouncing of Schlotti, the Polish currency. I should have picked that up. And Gidev. The last word sounds like almost every Slavic word for where, but with a V on the end. So it is most likely utter gibberish, but grounded in some sort of reality. Which is good to know. Which is good to know. So thanks ever so much for that, David. And thanks for listening to the show. And thanks for emailing. Yes, David. Thanks very much for putting us in the Bruno. <laughs> nice. So this episode originally aired on October the 3rd, 1991. But Gareth, I hear you saying, hopefully from a safe distance. What was the UK number one at that stage? I fear that Brian Adams remained in place. And with no change at number two, and me frankly not remembering a song called Insanity by a band called Oceanic at number three, I get to talk about a band who had an absolute glut of catchy, well-written, and masterfully arranged electronic pop hits around this time. It's Erasure, with Love to Hate You, which was at number four. Erasure, our boss. That's it. That's the tweet, as the children say. Okay, no, I won't cop out to that extent. Vince Clark, who was inspired to make synth music by orchestral maneuvers in the dark, was a founder member of Depeche Mode and had been half of Yazoo with Alison Moye, so already a very notable career there, formed Erasure with singer Andy Bell around 1985. After initial ignorance of their first album, they got on an absolute roll of top 20 singles and top 10 albums. I'm certain you'll all be aware of A Little Respect, but there was also Sometimes, Ship of Fools, Victim of Love, Stop, exclamation mark, Blue Savannah, and they just kept coming. We joined them here at their fifth album, Chorus, and showing no signs of slowing down. This is absolutely outstanding electronic pop music, and I love it. There's not much more I can say than that, really. Great band. One of those who, along with the Pet Shop Boys, redefined what a band could be like in a world with synthesizers and computer-generated music. Erasure would next go on to pay tribute to one of the great acts in pop history, and it would bring them what is to date their only UK number one. But that's a story for another day. Or maybe not, depending on when it happened and whether or not there was an episode of The Simpsons within a week of that happening. <laughs> yeah, I just I just want to echo those sentiments. Uh, Erasure, a great pop band, had some absolutely fantastic pop songs. The US viewership for this episode was a Nielsen of 13.9, which is equivalent to 12.8 million viewing households. It was 29th for the week overall and back to being the highest rated show on Fox. The production number was 7F23, so this was the last episode to air from the Season 2 block, and therefore technically the last one with Matt Grading as showrunner. The credited writer was John Vitti, who we discussed way back in Episode 2, Bart the Storming of the Stasi HQ. <laughs> at this stage, you might as well go back and listen to that one, because the sound quality won't be that much different. <laughs> the chalkboard gag was Nobody Likes Sunburn Slappers which is uh, very specific. And the couch gag featured the family walking like Egyptians. I feel like we've had that one before. And if we have, that must surely be the first, but certainly not the last repeated couch gag. Mm -hmm. So what happens in this episode? Well, the Simpsons are going to Flanders barbecue. Yes. Ned's having a beefathon. thon with incredible nedibles and mordacious vittles. 
But not all of the Simpsons are going there, as Homer has some important work to do, which for some reason includes watching all the exciting action from the 15th round of the Canadian Football League draft, whilst promising to laugh at the family from his grave if he dies of starvation. But this is Homer and Barbecue, so he eventually caves. And that means he's there for Ned's big announcement. Ned is leaving his job in the pharmaceutical industry to open a store full of items for the left-handed, called the Leftorium. A seriously annoyed Homer uses his wishbone power to wish for the failure of this business venture, rather than becoming president and winning the Super Bowl. Whereupon Flanders promptly saves him from choking to death on his own spiteful laughter. Then, there's an itchy and scratchy. The episode is O Solo Miao and sees Scratchy at an Italian restaurant where Itchy serves him spaghetti that contains a bomb. Scratchy doesn't notice until he's halfway through eating it and runs away, beheading himself on the doorframe. His body keeps running and explodes and a waiter slips on his head. These are getting even funnier to read in a semi-deadpan voice. (laughs) During the adverts, Bart sees a martial arts school in which everyone from doctors to architects to George Washington break various materials with their heads. He is hooked. And coincidentally, the left orium is just round the corner from the academy, allowing Homer to drop in and witness the massive lack of custom that Ned is experiencing. By which I mean literally one person who is only there as he validates parking without purchase. Meanwhile, Bart is already disappointed at the lack of nunchucks and the need to read before smashing anything, and so repairs to the arcade to play Touch of Death, which he is then forced to pass off as a martial arts lesson when Homer challenges him to prove what he's learned, once the latter has finished crowing about Flanders' impending failure, leading Lisa to teach him about schadenfreude. Ned continues to have problems, compounded by the usual suspect's shoplifting, which leave him feeling somewhat less than right as rain, or even left as rain, as they say around the left orium. Around this time, Homer starts to realise how many of his peers are struggling southpaws, including Mr. Burns and Moe. And there's that incident with the apples in the vending machine. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's certainly one for the bean counter. But rather than recommend Ned's shop, he turns the screw again and takes the opportunity to undercut Ned in his yard sale, filling his house with Ned's possessions on the cheap. Although, of course, the Simpson house is already full of Ned's possessions that Homer has borrowed, so really it's a reunion of sorts. (laughs) When the collections agency drops by, slightly prematurely in Homer's case, Homer is aware of how much trouble Ned is in. Around the same amount as Bart who gets found out on his lack of self-defense learning when Lisa Sachs is stolen by the usual bullies. And that's the end of the B-plot, which felt a bit thin, if I'm being frank. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Homer attempts to return some of his ill-gotten Flanders-based gains, and, upon finding his neighbors living in their car, finally has a twinge of conscience, and orders Ned to open the shop the next day, whereupon Ned is awash with customers as Homer spent the previous evening cluing in his left-handed acquaintances on its existence. They all sing Put on a Happy Face, 
and we're out. Didn't feel like as good an episode as I remembered it. No, no. On the watchback, I just remembered this is actually quite poor. Homer is just... I mean, we, we are pretty much a decade before before Homer goes into full jerk-ass mode. But at the start of the episode, it's, it's like, all right, he doesn't like Flanders, but he's just an arsehole. Yes, he's very... Um He's very much more livid than usual about the Flanders Simpsons uh, dichotomy. The uh, a friend of mine did mention when we were when I mentioned we were doing this episode that this was the not only the debut of Jerkass Homer but but arguably the debut of Sanctimonious Flanders. And I'm, I'm not necessarily sure I agree a hundred percent with that, but we're starting to see that kind of relationship being formed. I think. Um, we we are still definitely at the start of this episode in Flanders being the, the Joneses that you keep up with. Um, and there's, there's less God in this than there will be later on. We haven't gone through the whole Flanderization process yet, I don't think. No, no. But I, I can't argue it is beginning. Um, and the, the, the debut of the Leftorium is certainly part of that. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, Tom, would you like to hear about uh, some debuts in this episode? Oh, yes, please. It's the Leftorium, because as far as I could remember, there's uh, there's no new characters, or characters at least that go on to do anything in The Simpsons. Um, and that's really quite saying something when every minor character seems to get their own episode this these days. Um, yeah, all, all we've okay. got is the situation of Flanders running the Leftorium. Now, it's it's worth noting that in Springfield, this is actually a good idea for a business, since the ratio of Springfieldians who are left-handed seems to be unusually high, particularly based on this episode. This could be a product of Matt Groening's own status as a left-hander. Uh-huh. Always knew there was something sinister about him. Oh, God, that was terrible. Mm. Anyway... Ned will continue to run the store for many, many seasons, despite it being looted by a hurricane-addled crowd of mixed-handedness in Season 8, Episode 8, Hurricane Neddy. However, it will be downsized, much like this section, uh, to a kiosk at the mall, the Leftorium Express. And in fact, only half a kiosk that he shares with various other small businesses. Uh, we sit first see this in season 25, episode eight, White Christmas Blues. Although the continuity is a little elastic, and I believe he is seen back in the full size store afterwards. And boy, I hope someone got fired for that and so forth. Um, the Leftorium eventually collapses, in part due to competition from Southpaw Superstore. In season 29, episode 19, Left Behind. Flanders gets a new permanent job as a teacher at Springfield Elementary, which he has to this day, in part as a tribute to his deceased second wife. No spoilers. <laughs> right, okay. So, Tom, I, I do realise I haven't had as much to say about this episode. We're going to have to go straight into Did You Know? Uh, yep, fine, fine. So, this episode featured an unusually high amount of animation glitches when it was first returned to Fox. As a new batch of animators were being trained in Korea, and this was one of their early efforts. 
Mike Reese said there was literally an issue in every other scene. But because this was part of season two's production block, they had a much longer time to sort out all of those issues. So if this feels a little bit like it's going backwards in terms of the the quality and the the evolution of The Simpsons, that's why. I reckon this is probably meant to be an early season two one that literally had to be held back for that amount of time just to be watchable. Hmm. Which, which would explain why it doesn't feel as polished. The writing doesn't feel as good, this one. No, you're quite right. And, and, and that one thing could explain all of that. Hmm. Okay. The name of this episode is a reference to the poem In Flanders Field by John McRae, which was first published in 1919, I think. I got a <laughs> few different reads on that one. Um, anyway, it appears to have popularized the use of a red poppy as a symbol of war remembrance. Again, I think I'm a bit sure about that bit. But, you know, if you want to write in and correct us, that's fine. Two emails in two years. I think we can deal with that. It's, uh, <laughs> um, right at the end. I like this one. Right at the end, as Flanders goes up the escalator to the left orium, you could just about make out a shop in the background called simply shoes now blink and you'll miss it and you'll need good eyesight and a pretty good resolution on your telly but in that window there's a sign for a half price sale on assassins sneakers nice last one by ned and later homer in season two episode 16 bart's dog gets an f now that is good attention to detail yeah, I've, I feel like retiring from Did You Know after that. But yeah, I've got at least one more for you, which is the arcade features another cabinet for the obviously quite popular arcade game, Robert Goulet Destroyer. <laughs> Sorry, I just love that idea as a, for an arcade game. It's awesome. And that, I fear, is all I've got this week. So, um, Tom, okay. over to yourself. Okay, so... Now, one thing I forgot to do about the Simpsons episode last week, uh, which is quite a feat, seeing as it was only the second time I was meant to do it, was the meme count. Uh, Because good though Mr. Lisa goes to Washington is, it doesn't really have any memeable moments, which is a bit weird because on the flip side, um, this one, despite not being nearly as good an episode, has two. It has boy those germans have the word for everything and no more apples in the vending machine please i mean they're kind of weak ones but they're but they're definitely in use yeah yeah i mean I, I forgot this was the episode with the apples in the vending machines until very recently in fact until you told me 10 minutes before we started recording this this is the one with the apples in the vending machine so Indeed. Um, uh, but yeah that's that's one of the ones i see see more often um Obviously getting a, a fair few virus memes at the minute, um, but we're, we're a little bit away from getting to the Osaka flu, I'm afraid. Yes, we are. Yeah, odd that. Right, so shall we have a bit of history? Let's go for it. Okay, so here we are. So on October 3rd, 1991, the very same day that When Flanders Failed was first aired, one William Jefferson Clinton, who at the time was the governor of Arkansas, announced he was running for the Democratic nomination to be their candidate in the race for the White House. Spoiler alert, he won it and would go on to dominate American politics for most of the 90s. 
So rather than go back into a detailed look at Bill Clinton's presidency, I thought of I thought I'd have a look at lots of other American presidents who get referenced a lot in The Simpsons, starting from the beginning and working our way up to George H.W. Bush, who was in the Oval Office when this episode was broadcast. I promise we'll find out how William Henry Harrison died within 30 days. (laughs) So, to the beginnings with George Washington, the first president of the USA. He appears many times in The Simpsons, including fighting with Jebediah Springfield and appearing to Lisa in a dream. Washington was born in 1732, the son of Augustine Washington, who was a wealthy landowner and justice of the peace. Washington was brought up entirely in Virginia, then a British colony, and he didn't leave the country until 1751. He took his brother Lawrence on a trip to Barbados, hoping the climate there would help with his tuberculosis. Ironically enough, Lawrence had come to TB a year later, and the only thing Washington got from that trip was a dose of smallpox, leaving him with a permanent scar. And one thing I need to say is that George Washington is referenced in this very episode with the line, I cannot tell a lie. Now, that's a story about George Washington's childhood when he's supposed to have chopped down a cherry tree with a hatchet. And when challenged on this by his father, George Washington says, I cannot tell a lie. I did it. That is a complete myth. It was made up by... (laughs) It is. It was. It was made up by his biographers after he died because they were looking for some sort of story to show off his character, and that's what they came up with. I had a feeling that might be apocryphal. It just seems too good to be true. Oh yeah, absolutely. Anyway, so so before Lawrence Washington died, he was a member of the Virginia militia, and wanting to follow in his brother's footsteps, Washington applied for a commission. He was made a major by Robert Dinwiddle. Washington's first action was in what's become known as the French and Indian War, a war which saw British forces square up against the French, with both sides having support from various Native American tribes. And if I'm using outdated terminology there, I apologise. In fact, Washington was in command during the incident that started it, known as the Battle of Jumonville Glen. In it, Dinwiddle ordered Washington to go north and fight the French at the forks of the Ohio in order to drive them out. Finding that the French forces numbered only 50, they were easily killed by Washington and some of them scalped. The French claimed that the force was in fact a diplomatic convoy. The incident led to full-scale war, but the war would kind of be subsumed into the unimaginatively named Seven Years' War. This war started in 1756, and as well as Britain and France, it involved various colonies all over the world, as well as pretty much every European power, including Prussia, Austria, Russia, the Holy Roman Empire, and even Sweden. So, I mean, if you think trying to explain the First World War is complicated, the Seven Years' War is even worse. So, shortly after the war began, Washington was in command of Fort Necessity, a fortification in Pennsylvania. The French attacked, and Washington surrendered for the first and only time in his military career. Now, that's very relevant to Simpsons Law, because it's the event that Bart gets an extra point for referencing in his history test in Bart Gets an F. Washington continued to serve throughout the war. The British would eventually win, and the war was concluding with the signing of the Treaty of Paris in 1763. Although Washington would see a lot of success in the war, he was never promoted to the regular British army. After the war, he became a very wealthy man, having been promised land for his military service. He also became politically active, presenting legislation to the Virginia Assembly. 
As time wore on, tensions between the Americans and the British led to the American Revolution. Washington was appointed to the First Continental Congress, and after the Continental Army was created, Washington went up against John Hancock, who would go on to be the first governor of Massachusetts. When Hancock signed the Declaration of Independence, his signature was so large and elaborate that it went down in American folklore. Hence, Bart calls his signature the old John Hancock in Bart the Fink, and why he writes his name in the snow in Bart Gets an F. The American War of Independence was concluded in 1783 with the signing of another Treaty of Paris, confusingly enough. After the signing, Washington planned to retire from the army and return to civilian life. However, the American Constitution wasn't developed at that point. The newly independent states were held together by the rather loose Articles of Confederation. Reluctantly, Washington agreed to be Virginia's delegate to the Constitutional Convention. The first draft of the Constitution contained articles that created the offices of President and Vice President, with the first election starting on December 15th, 1788, and concluding on January 10th, 1789, making it the only US election to span two years. There weren't any political parties yet, and instead politicians split along Federalist and Anti-Federalist lines, but even that wasn't much of a distinction. The Federalists were enthusiastic about the ratification of the Constitution, and the Anti-Federalists were somewhat more reluctant. Both factions supported George Washington, as he was considered national hero, and he ran unopposed, gaining 100% of the Electoral College votes, with John Adams becoming Vice President. His first term was marked by political infighting, notably between Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. In short, Jefferson was a bit of an authoritarian who believed in strong central government, and Hamilton was more of a libertarian who believed in individual state rights. Washington had planned to retire after his first term, but he stood again when he found that Jefferson and Hamilton wouldn't call a truce, winning the 1792 election virtually unopposed. By 1796, two parties were vying for power coming out of the struggles between Jefferson and Hamilton. In the election that year, John Adams stood for the Federalist Party, while Jefferson was the candidate for the Democratic Republican Party. The election was very close, with Adams getting 71 electoral votes and Jefferson receiving 68. However, back in those days, the runner-up became vice president, so you had someone from one party becoming president and someone from a completely different party being their deputy, which must have been fun. Adams' presidency was marked by the XYZ affair, although it's American, so it's almost certainly said XYZ, where French merchants were bribed to start trade negotiations due to the ongoing French revolutionary wars against the British. This shocked the American public, and there was also a lot of controversy around the Alien and Sedition Acts, which made it harder for foreigners to settle in the USA. Adams was a one-termer, losing the 1800 election to Thomas Jefferson in a reverse of the 1796 election. This election introduced the concept of a running mate, so voting for a president was also a vote for the vice president. As for Thomas Jefferson, he never did anything important, just the Declaration of Independence, the Louisiana Purchase, the Dumbwaiter. Uh, well, he, he didn't invent the Dumbwaiter, but the, Lucy, but the Louisiana Purchase was pretty important. You've got to remember Jefferson had been second in American politics for some time, firstly behind Washington and then Adams, and 1800 was his time to shine. He repealed Adams's Alien and Sedition Acts, as well as cutting taxes, public spending and the national debt. In 1803, the Louisiana Purchase was completed. Now, it's called Louisiana because it's named after Louis XIV, the Sun King, but it wasn't how we understand it today. Nowadays, we know Louisiana is the state in the south of the USA, home to New Orleans, the city of pirates, drunks and whores. 
and taking over the price of souvenir stores. But back then, it stretched from the south coast all the way up to Canada, stretching as far west as modern-day Montana. So, you know, you're not that far from the Pacific Ocean. Spain controlled the area, which lies to the west of the original 13 states, since 1762. Then when Napoleon came to power in France, he took control of it in an attempt to re-establish French colonies overseas. However, French experiences in Saint-Domingue, modern-day Haiti, see episode 26, Homer versus Lisa and Jean-Bertrand Aristide, for more on that, soured these ambitions and made Napoleon consider selling Louisiana to the States. The sale was concluded in October 1804, with the US buying the 800,000 square miles for $15 million. The purchase was commemorated on Free Flags Day, and this is really a bit weird. Although all parties considered Louisiana to be France's to sell to the USA, it still officially belonged to Spain. So representatives from all three countries met at St. Louis, the Spanish officially handed the territory over to the French, and the French officially sold it to the Americans. So you had the flags of France, Spain and America all there, hence, hence Free Flags Day. So Jefferson won the 1804 election in a landslide, with his Federalist rival Charles C. Pinckney winning just two states. At the end of his second term, he declined to stand again, but out of tradition rather than following any rules. Jefferson's Secretary of State James Madison won the election for the Democratic Republic Party, once again comfortably beating the Federalist Charles C. Pinckney. I've not got a huge amount to say about James Madison, and neither did the Simpsons, but he was a two-termer whose presidency saw the War of 1812. In this war, the British wanted to stop the USA trading with Napoleonic France, and the war would see them burning down the White House. It ended in 1815 with the signing of the Treaty of Ghent. The first presidential election after this was the election of 1816, which was won by James Monroe. Monroe, who hopefully isn't the inspiration behind Dr. Marvin Monroe, would go on to win the 1820 election virtually unopposed for the Republic Democratic Party after the Federalist Party disbanded. Monroe's presidency was part of the so-called era of good feelings, the time of American national unity. Therefore, the presidential election of 1824 was a really weird one. With only one real party, four men from the Democratic Republican Party ran. None of them got a majority in the election, but Andrew Jackson got 41% of the popular vote, while John Quincy Adams got 30%. The rules of the time meant that a vote was to be taken in the House of Representatives, who went for Adams, who became president. And that is just mind-boggling. I cannot get my head around that. That's so weird. Yeah, so, that's... Yeah, I I mean, it's obviously not a situation that would occur these days, but it does seem a little bit uh, counterintuitive. Yeah, definitely. So by 1825, the Democratic-Republican Party had split into the Democratic Party and the National Republican Party, the forerunners to what the USA has today. The 1828 presidential election was the reverse of the one four years earlier, with Andrew Jackson of the Democratic Party defeating Quincy Adams, the National Republican candidate. Now, if you'd bothered to do the assignment, you'd know that Andrew Jackson's nickname was the Battle of New Orleans. I mean, Old Hickory. His soldiers gave him that name during the War of 1812. As a commanding officer, he was said to have been as tough as Old Hickory. Jackson's most notable legislation was the Indian Removal Act of 1830, which saw tens of thousands of Native Americans forcibly removed from their homes in the events of the Trail of Tears. You know, very nasty business. Jackson also clashed with American banks. He was also a two-termer, comfortably beating Henry Clay in the 1832 election. 
1836 presidential election was again a bit of an odd one. The Democrat candidate was Martin Van Buren, who was Andrew Jackson's handpicked successor. He was not up against anyone from the Republican Party, but instead it was four candidates from the newly formed Whig Party. Ah, the Whigs. I thought that was more of a British political thing. Ah, well, it was a sort of, it was a Western thing more than anything, really, because certainly in this country, you uh, you had the idea of conservatives and Whigs, and the conservatives were on the side of, you know, tradition and royalty, and the Whigs were on the side of business. And yeah, you had a similar thing in the States. So this Whig party was formed by Republicans, some Democrats, and others who thought that Jackson was too authoritarian, some giving him the moniker King Andrew. The first year of Van Buren's term saw the Panic of 1837, a financial crisis that saw land prices collapse, thousands of jobs lost, and banks fail. The country hadn't recovered by the time of the 1840 election, and the Democratic Party was in some sort of crisis. And they didn't even field a candidate for vice president, with the incumbent, Richard Mentor Johnson, being seen as a liability. Van Buren lost to the Whig candidate, one William Henry Harrison. He was the oldest man elected to the presidency so far, at the ripe old age of 68. His inauguration was a cold and wet day, but to show everyone that he was in good health, he arrived without an overcoat or hat. His inauguration speech was over two hours long, and in it he set out his agenda for his term in office. All of his bravery slash foolishness probably contributed to his death, as he died of typhoid or some other communicable disease for doctors back then weren't that great so yes he died 30 days into his presidency his death caused something of a political crisis as no president had died in office before the debate was whether his vice president john tyler should assume a sort of caretaker role and carry out harrison's agenda or if he could be his own man and carry out the presidential duties as he saw fit as it happened tyler became president and completely tore up harrison's agenda this made him unpopular with pretty much everyone and he was dubbed his accidency. Very clever play on words back then, rather than your excellency, your accidency. So, towards the end of his presidency, Texas became an issue. It had declared its independence from Mexico, and some of the states, believing in the doctrine of manifest destiny, which is a ridiculous, bombastic doctrine, but that's what some people believe in, they believe it should be annexed. Due to Tyler's unpopularity, he wasn't selected as a candidate, but he supported annexation, as did his successor, James Polk, who narrowly beat the Whig candidate, Henry Clay, in the 1844 presidential election. The annexation of Texas led to the Mexican-American War, which saw the US prevail and Texas become a state in 1845. This was the background of the 1848 election, with the Whigs nominating Zachary Taylor, a general who led the war effort. Taylor, who also features in the lesser-known president's song, beat the Democratic candidate, Lewis Cass, in an election that also featured former President Martin Van Buren, who stood as a candidate for his anti-slavery Free Soil Party, and he got 10% of the vote. Like Harrison, Taylor also died in office just a year into his presidency. Officially, he died of a form of cholera, possibly originating from a case of food poisoning but there were rumours that he was deliberately poisoned by someone from the pro-slavery southern states. His vice president, Millard Fillmore, took over for the rest of the term. Fillmore was broadly pro-slavery, a position that put him at odds with many Whig supporters in the North. At their convention in 1852, the Whigs chose Winfield Scott as their nominee over Fillmore, as many believed he was in a better place to win the election. 
This didn't come to pass, as Scott was comfortably defeated by Franklin Pierce, the nominee from the Democratic Party. Pierce was a compromise candidate who tried to appeal to pro- and anti-slavery components in the North and South, and as a result, he wasn't really popular with anyone. Never heard that story before. The Democrats did not renominate him, instead going for James Buchanan. Buchanan won the 1856 election, comfortably beating the Republican John Fremont, as well as Millard Fillmore, who was running under his own American party. Buchanan's presidency saw another financial crisis, this time the Panic of 1857. It's like a cycle. They have a panic and then a load of speculation and then another panic. It's like they never learn. This combined with the ongoing issue of potential succession of the slaveholder states meant that Buchanan did not seek a second term. That set the stage for the presidential election of 1860, and that's the big one. The Republican Party was anti-slavery. Yes, there was a time when the Republicans were the good guys. And its nominee for president was one Abraham Lincoln. The election was a four-way contest between Lincoln, the Southern Democratic John Breckinridge, the Northern Democrat Stephen Douglas, and John Bell of the Constitutional Union Party. Lincoln won pretty much all the states in the North, as well as California and Oregon on the West Coast. Breckinridge won almost all the Southern states, including Texas and Florida. Despite receiving nearly 30% of the popular vote, Douglas only won one state, the state of Missouri. Bell won Tennessee, Kentucky and Virginia, which were kind of in the middle. Thanks to the quirks of the Electoral College system, Lincoln won the election despite getting just under 40% of the popular vote. If it had been done under some sort of proportional representation, he probably wouldn't have got in. His election was the trigger for the first seven southern states to succeed from the Union and start the Confederacy, thus starting the American Civil War. I've already talked about the war in the flag special, so I won't go over it again here. Needless to say, the Union forces won the war, the Confederacy was defeated, and slavery in the USA came to an end. Lincoln himself met an untimely end at the hand of John Wilkes Booth, who assassinated him at Ford's Theatre. The Simpsons chose to immortalise Lincoln, especially his death, in a number of ways. Bart does his best Terminator impression while shooting Lincoln, played by Milhouse, with ping-pong balls before declaring, You're next, Chester A. Arthur. The Lincoln Memorial is inanimate in Mr. Lisa Goes to Washington, unlike the Jefferson Memorial, and a robot of Lincoln does a painful rap in promoting Duff Beer. Also, a squirrel resembling Abe Lincoln is found by the local newspaper, and the squirrel is assassinated shortly afterwards. <laughs> we'll stay with that story all night if we have to. <laughs> There's also a great bit in Homer's Triple Bypass where Homer tries to assure Lisa that he won't die because that only happens to bad people. She then counters that with, what about Abe Lincoln? And Homer replies, he sold poison milk to school children. <laughs> it's a great joke, I love that. Right, weirdly enough, there was a presidential election in 1864, despite the fact that the Civil War was still raging. Obviously, the Confederate States didn't take part, and the Republican Party was remodelled as the National Union Party in an attempt to woo war Democrats. Lincoln selected Andrew Johnson, who was himself a war Democrat, as his running mate. The plan worked and Lincoln was re-elected in a landslide, winning all but three states from his Democratic rival George McClellan, despite getting only 55% of the popular vote. After Lincoln's assassination, Johnson took over, but after clashing with Congress, he was not selected to be the candidate of the newly reformed Republican Party. That plan went to Ulysses S. Grant, the most decorated Union general of the war. 
His popularity saw the Republicans win the 1968 election, again decisively in the Electoral College, but with just 52% of the popular vote. The runner-up was Horatio Seymour, the Democratic candidate. Yeah, quite a name. Seymour! So, the 1872 election was another slightly odd one. The incumbent Grant was the nominee for the Republicans, as expected, but he faced a challenge not from the Democrats, but the Liberal Republicans, a splinter group who were unhappy with the way Grant was running things. The Democrats, who were so desperate to see the back of Grant, backed the Liberal Republicans and their candidate, Horace Greeley. Nevertheless, Grant was re-elected quite comfortably. The 1876 election was one of the most controversial in American history, possibly even surpassing the 2000 election that saw George W. Bush win thanks to hanging chads. The Republican nominee was Rutherford B. Hayes, who again is one of the presidents in the mediocre president song. His opponent was the Democrat Samuel Tilden. Overall, Tilden didn't just receive more votes than Hayes. He got 50% of the votes, giving him a majority in the popular vote. But votes in four states were closely contested, so much so that in Oregon, their elector was replaced in the middle of the count for not being impartial enough. To end the controversy, the Democrats came up with a compromise. They would agree that the Republicans had won all the contested states, putting Hayes in the White House by a solitary college vote. In return, Hayes agreed to pull federal troops out of the southern states, ending the period of Reconstruction after the Civil War. From then on, racist officials in the southern states were free to discriminate against black voters and disenfranchise them. Nice, eh? Hayes lasted just one term, agreeing not to run for re-election. Yeah, after that, I don't really blame him. It's uh, probably best. Mm -hmm. So he was followed by James Garfield, who won the popular vote in the 1880 election by just 2,000 votes, despite easily winning the Electoral College. Garfield was assassinated in his first year in office, shot by the disgruntled Republican Charles Guitou, which I have written phonetically. Garfield was succeeded by his vice president, Chester A. Arthur. So why Bart says you're next, Chester A. Arthur, I have no idea. Well, I, I, actually, I now think I know why that is. It, he's, he's assassinated. Obviously, it's Lincoln he's assassinating in the school play. But, you know, he's making a, making a reference to another another presidential assassination. Although, um, for Bart, that's a bit too sharp. OK. Mm. Cheerfully withdrawn. <laughs> OK. Um, so Arthur declined to stand in the 1884 election, which was won by Grover Cleveland, the first Democrat to win a presidential election for 28 years. Cleveland won all of the southern states with enough swing states in the north to carry him over the line. Cleveland only won one term, being defeated in the 1888 election by the Republican Benjamin Harrison. However, in the election of 1892, the American electorate declared it's been done and Harrison was not re-elected, losing to Grover Cleveland. It was the first time that a president had been elected to two non-consecutive terms. His second term saw the Panic of 1893, yet another financial crisis. Again, they never learn. On the back of this, the Republican William McKinley won the election in 1896 and again in 1900 following American victory in the Spanish-American War. McKinley was assassinated six months into his second term by the anarchist Leon Frank Chaugosch, which is a Polish name. Chaugosch queued up to meet McKinley at a public reception, 
covered his pistol with a handkerchief, and when it was his turn to meet the president, he shot him twice in the abdomen. McKinley was succeeded by his vice president, Teddy Roosevelt. Now, Roosevelt appears quite a lot in The Simpsons, including having his head chopped off by Itchy in Chester J. Lampwick's Manhattan Madness. Roosevelt would be the first vice president to assume office and then win an election in his own right, comfortably defeating the Democrat Alton B. Parker in the 1904 election. Roosevelt honoured his promise to not run again, and instead the Republicans chose William Howard Taft as their candidate. Now, in The Simpsons, Taft has an affair with Mr. Burns' mother, causing Homer to say, Taft, you old dog. Taft displeased Roosevelt, and it led to a split in the Republican Party. Roosevelt formed the Progressive Party and ran against Taft in the 1912 elections. This split pretty much cleared the way for the Democrats, who, thanks to the Electoral College system, won the election in a landslide. Now, do you know who their candidate was? I feel like I probably should. Yeah, because he's very he's very important in The Simpsons. It was none other than Mrs. Crabapple's mystery lover, one Woodrow Wilson. Oh, yeah. If, were I not sat down, I would be kicking myself. <laughs> so on the international stage, Wilson's presidency was dominated by the First World War. Initially, he wanted to keep the USA out of it. But after the 1916 election and the Germans declaring unrestricted submarine warfare on shipping in the Atlantic, he took the USA into the war on the Allies' side. Following the war, Wilson's popularity waned, possibly due to the effects of Prohibition, which was introduced with the 18th Amendment in 1917. He hoped to be nominated for a third term, but he was passed over in favour of James M. Cox. Cox lost the election of 1920 to the Republican Warren G. Harding. Harding died of heart failure in 1923, leaving his vice president Calvin Coolidge in charge. Under Coolidge, America entered the Roaring Twenties, and he won the presidential election of 1924 with 54% of the popular vote. As the economy continued to boom, Coolidge declined to run again, and instead Herbert Hoover won the 1928 election in a landslide. The boom wouldn't last long, as the stock market crash of 1929 was around the corner. This triggered the Great Depression, and the world economy took a turn for the worse. Change in America was inevitable, and the Democrats put up Franklin Delano Roosevelt against Herbert Hoover. Promising a new deal for American workers, FDR won the 1932 election in the biggest landslide yet, with Hoover winning just six states. FDR introduced Social Security and unemployment benefits. These measures proved very popular, and he won the 1936 election in an even bigger landslide, winning all but two states. By 1940, the American economy had, was recovering, but World War II had started in Europe. FDR was encouraged to run for an unprecedented third term, which he got, comfortably beating the Republican businessman Wendell Wilkie. After the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor fully brought the USA into the Second World War, Roosevelt was a war president and his leadership won him a fourth term in office following the election of 1944. Towards the end of World War II, FDR's health waned and he died three months into his fourth term, with his vice president Harry Truman taking over. Truman was widely expected to lose the first post-war election in 1948 to the Republican Thomas Dewey, with the Chicago Tribune running the headline, Dewey Defeats Truman, on the night of the election, something the Simpsons parodied with Simpson Defeats Prince in the election for class president. Ah, yes. Truman presided over the Marshall Plan, a series of huge loans to rebuild the shattered European powers. 
The Simpsons parody this by saying that Truman authorised a trillion-dollar bill to be sent to Europe, a bill that's stolen by Mr. Burns. When it doesn't arrive, the Europeans vow to be snooty to Americans forever. Truman wanted to run again in 1952, but was defeated in the primaries by Adlai Stevenson. Stevenson makes an appearance in The Simpsons, saying that he has no objection to man walking on the moon in the ancient public information film that Bart is forced to watch. Based on that assessment, Stevenson must have been quite a dull man, and he went on to lose the 1952 election to Dwight D. Eisenhower, an architect of the D-Day landings and five-star general. And what is Eisenhower's catchphrase? Uh. Accord- All right. According to Krusty the Clown, what is Eisenhower's catchphrase? Oh, it's a uh, let's get busy. Let's get busy. Yeah. Oh, now there's a memeable moment. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which we won't be getting to for a little while. No, no. So apparently that's based on a real Eisenhower quote where he would tell various departments to get busy with his plans. Eisenhower won a second term in 1956, again beating Adlai Stevenson. The 1960 election featured a contest that would give us a true classic Simpsons meme because it was between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon. Ah. Kennedy's quips, charm and good looks in TV debates were set against Nixon's gruffness and poor posture, giving us the immortal line, the man never drank a duff in his life. Although uh, Nixon would, of course, have the moral victory when he came back to power in the year 3001, uh, as as covered by most of the run of Futurama. Uh, to which I could only say, <laughs> Yeah, but that's a different show. Anyway, of course, Kennedy has numerous other appearances in The Simpsons, and he's the inspiration for Mayor Diamond Joe Quimby, declaring Ick B9 Springfield Swapmeat Patron, a reference to Kennedy's Ick B9 Berliner speech at the Berlin Wall. Just in case you didn't know, Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas in 1963, shot by former Marine Lee Harvey Oswald. As for I'm nation sure, war, I'm sure, Tom, you meant to say a second gunman on a grassy knoll with some kind of alien pistol. Oh, God, no, don't even go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> mad conspiracy stuff. So, as the nation mourned, Lyndon B. Johnson assumed the role of president, going on to win the election of 1964 comfortably, beating the Republican Barry Goldwater. Goldwater was a conservative who opposed the Civil Rights Act. So I think that tells you all you need to know about him. Oof. So in 1968, a lot was going on in America. Martin Luther King was assassinated, the Vietnam War rumbled on, and Richard Nixon became president, defeating Lyndon B. Johnson's former vice president, Hubert Humphrey. The first year of Nixon's presidency saw the success of the Apollo 11 mission that made Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin the first men on the moon. On the back of a strong economy and a hawkish attitude to Vietnam, Nixon won the 1972 election in a ridiculous landslide, winning 49 states, which is all except Massachusetts and Washington, D.C., from George McGovern, a Democrat who vowed to end the Vietnam War as soon as he took office. Nixon's presidency was brought to an end by the Watergate scandal. In short, the Nixon administration paid people to spy on the Democratic National Convention at the Watergate Hotel and then tried to cover it up. The Simpsons, understandably, then stay at the Watergate Hotel in Lisa Simpson Goes to Washington, in a piece of biting satire. However, before that, Nixon's vice president, Spire Agnew, was removed from his position in a separate corruption inquiry. So according to the chain of command, the Speaker of the House became vice president, that being Gerald Ford. Ford, who, remember, loves nachos and football, became... 
and also some beer. Yes, yes, can't forget that. Um, he became president on Nixon's resignation, making him the only person in history to become both US vice president and president without winning elections for either, which is probably why he's remembered quite negatively. Yeah, I've I've done some reading up on Gerald Ford in the meantime, and, and the impression I get is that he he was kind of done with his political career when all of this kicked off, um, and kind of just 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 almost found himself accidentally becoming vice president and president. Yeah, which, uh, pretty much. Which in itself is 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 quite the achievement. It, it was almost like just the 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 gold the gold carriage clock on the way out of his political career. Um, Absolutely. But it's it's difficult to um, I, I'm about to say it's difficult on that basis to feel like he's a bad person, and I'm sure you're about to tell me five thousand bad things he did whilst in office. Oh no, 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 not at all, not to. Uh, I'm just going to go straight in and say that Ford stood for election in the 1976 election with Senator K- uh, Bob Dole as his running mate. But ah, he was, but he Bob was Dole defeat- doesn't need this. That's right. But he was defeated by history's greatest monster. Yes, the 1976 election was won by none other than wealthy peanut farmer Jimmy Carter, with Walter Walter Mondale, who lends his name to a laundry ship, as his running mate. The Carter administration was unpopular right from the start, as the country was in the grip of stagflation, seeing high inflation and slow growth. His presidency was also hugely affected by what was going on in Iran, as the Iranian revolution saw a huge drop in oil production, leading to an energy crisis of 1979. That year also saw the Iranian hostage crisis and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. In spite of all this, Carter won the nomination of the Democratic Party for the 1980 presidential election, but lost that election to Ronald Reagan and his running mate George H.W. Bush. With Reagan in power in the White House and Margaret Thatcher in 10 Downing Street, the West entered the neoliberalism of the 1980s. Despite a recession in 1981, the US economy was doing well in 1984 and Reagan was proving to be a popular leader. He crushed the Democratic nominee Walter Mondale in the 1984 election, winning every state except, and I want, I want to see if you can get this from the Simpsons line, Walter Mondale won one state in the 1984 election. I want to see if, if you know what it is. Oh... It's not Taxachusetts, is it? No, no, no. If I give you a bit of a quote, we'll see if you can complete it. Okay. Mondale to heart. Where's the beef? <sighs> no, I remember. I remember the line. I did not remember the payoff. Okay, okay. So, so I think it's Lisa reads the headline. Mondale to heart. Where's the beef? And Homer uh, chuckles. Where's the beef? No wonder he won Minnesota. Oh, damn it. Yes. So there you go. That's what that line's referring to. Walter Mondale, the only state he won in the 1984 election was Minnesota. So the Reagan years saw a strong US economy, the continuation of the Cold War and some very big haircuts. <laughs> the 22nd Amendment of the US Constitution, passed in 1951, barred him from running for a third term. So instead, George H.W. Bush, his vice president for both his terms, ran as the Republican candidate, along with Dan, how the hell do you spell potato, Quayle, as his running mate. They were up against the Democrat Michael Dukakis, 
Reagan voters stuck with Bush and he won in a landslide with Dukakis only winning a handful of states. Of course, the presidency of George H.W. Bush saw the first full episode of Simpsons and Bush makes numerous appearances in it. And that brings us to when Flanders Failed was first aired. Bush did not enjoy the popularity of Reagan. His public speaking left something to be desired, famously being sick at a Japanese banquet, and the American economy fared less well under his leadership, hence Bart's line, we're praying for an end to the Depression too. Bush's leadership also saw unpopular tax rises, victory in the Gulf War, and, spoilers, the breakup of the Soviet Union. Against this backdrop, Bill Clinton entered the race to become the Democratic nominee on October 3rd, 1991, the same day as When Flanders Failed first aired. Bill Clinton had something of a meteoric rise. His early life was pretty complicated, as he was given the name William Jefferson Blythe III at birth, but his father, William Jefferson Blythe Jr., died in a car accident before he was born. His mother, Virginia Dell Cassidy, later married Roger Clinton, the car dealership owner from Arkansas, and young Bill took his name. His father was something of a violent drunk, so he very much grew up in adversity. He was also a very accomplished musician. He played tennis saxophone in the state saxophone section, where he won first chair. That was not a dream. While at school, Clinton became class president. He won a scholarship to study law at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., where he became a member of the Alpha Phi Omega fraternity. He graduated in 1968 and won a Rhodes Scholarship to study at Oxford University. He went back to the States after one year, expecting to be drafted into the army to fight in the Vietnam War. And there, there's a weird contradiction in Bill Clinton's early life. He was very much against the Vietnam War, but was in a really tricky position, because if you didn't play ball, you could be punished. When the States learned of his studies at Oxford, they offered him an educational deferment, meaning that he could complete his studies there. He declined to do so and went to study at Yale. That's where he met Hillary and started working for George McGovern's presidential election campaign. Clinton graduated from Yale in 1973 and became a law professor at the University of Arkansas. Although the way professors work in the States, it's it's slightly different. Here you have to have a research chair, but in America you can go more or less straight from PhD to professor. It's a bit weird what we do there. Anyway, so just a year later... Clinton ran for Congress for the Democrats and narrowly lost out to Republican John Paul Hammerschmidt. Two years later, he was elected Arkansas Attorney General. In 1979, he ran for, and was elected, Governor of Arkansas at just 31 years old, an exceptionally young age for such a role. With a break between 81 and 83, Clinton would continue as Governor of Arkansas until 1992. In throwing his hat into the ring for the 1992 Democratic primaries, Bill Clinton was up against Jerry Brown, the former governor of California, Paul Songus, and Senators Bob Kerry and Tom Harkin. There was at least one other notable runner, and they've certainly been mentioned in The Simpsons, Lyndon LaRouche. In the Treehouse of Horror episode where the aliens Kang and Kodos assume the forms of Bill Clinton and Bob Dole, Homer exclaims Lyndon LaRouche was right when he finds out about it. This is because LaRouche was a famous conspiracy theorist, Marxist and cult leader. One of his theories was the October Surprise Theory, which postulated that the Republicans had conspired with the Iranians so that the hostages taken in the 1979 hostage crisis wouldn't be released until after the 1980 election in order to help Ronald Reagan. Because of this, LaRouche has become a shorthand for conspiracy theories in pop culture, including in The Simpsons. 
As for Bill Clinton, he would go on to comfortably win the Democratic primary following a very strong Super Tuesday. As Bill Clinton came to dominate the 90s, I won't talk too much about him now. I'll save it for other shows. But for now, I will leave you dreaming of being a baseball, moving forwards, not backwards, upwards, not forwards, and always twirling, twirling, twirling towards freedom. Excellent stuff, Tom. Um, You've also stopped me from having to mention any of the times that any of those things were mentioned in The Simpsons, because you mentioned all the times all those things were mentioned in The Simpsons. So, uh, (laughs) fantastic. Week off for me, basically. That's... uh... but i'll take it i will take it and i believe on that bombshell we are uh we are off uh to our uh respective uh bunkers don't forget you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on spotify apple Podcasts, and stitcher and you can follow us on twitter at underscore retrospecticus Email us at podcast.retrospectus.org and you can check out our 90s playlist on Spotify, which I must remember to repost the link to at some stage. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review any way you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Bye, everyone.